Here's a joke for you. Why is the Supreme Court like the NBA? All the white guys are on the bench. Hey everyone, I'm Mediba, and I'm an attorney who fights for social justice. You're listening to the second episode of my podcast, Bard and Bougie. Bard and Bougie is a podcast about law and politics that breaks down the issues in a way that everyone can understand, while centering those of us who get pushed to the margins. Let's get started. On this week's episode, I want to talk with you all about the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is the highest federal court in the United States and generally has the final say in interpreting and applying laws. Justice Anthony Kennedy has been serving on the Supreme Court since he was appointed by Ronald Reagan 30 years ago. But last month, Justice Kennedy submitted his resignation, effective today, July 31st. This means that, for the second time, Donald Trump will get to appoint a new justice to the Supreme Court. And since these are lifetime appointments, Trump will get to shape the court and its ability and willingness to protect our rights for decades. Let's begin by talking about why Justice Kennedy's seat in particular is so important, and then we'll discuss the judge that has been nominated to replace him, Brett Kavanaugh. The Judiciary Act of 1869 established that the Supreme Court will be made up of nine justices. Currently, four of those justices are fairly reliably liberal, and four are reliably conservative. And then you have Kennedy. Kennedy has spoken about how he doesn't like being called a swing vote, but the fact is he has occasionally sided with progressives despite being a staunch Republican. It was Kennedy who had the deciding vote recognizing the constitutional right of same-sex couples to marry. It was Kennedy who joined liberals to uphold the constitutional right to an abortion. To be clear, he is not some kind of progressive hero. He's still the same guy who voted to uphold Trump's Muslim ban as constitutional, for example. But his position as a swing vote has put him at the center of a lot of crucial decisions. His resignation means that Donald Trump can replace him with someone much further to the right and lock in a solid conservative majority for the foreseeable future. A lot of hard-fought wins that some liberals took for granted may now be up for reconsideration in front of an unfriendly court. In other words, civil rights were fun while they lasted. Now, I want to turn to Brett Kavanaugh, specifically who he is and what we can probably expect from him on the Supreme Court. Donald Trump announced on July 9th that he was nominating Brett Kavanaugh to be the next Supreme Court justice. Kavanaugh is currently a judge on the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, where he served since 2006. Prior to that, Kavanaugh worked in the Solicitor General's office under George H.W. Bush. He also worked on the younger Bush's legal team during the 2000 Florida recount, which resulted in the Supreme Court voting on party lines to install George W. Bush in office. Kavanaugh was also staff secretary in the younger Bush's White House. Additionally, in the 90s, Kavanaugh was senior counsel on the investigation into then-President Bill Clinton. I'll put a pin in that for later. Young Kavanaugh also clerked for multiple judges, including Justice Kennedy and Judge Alex Kaczynski, who, for the non-lawyers listening, is a very prestigious sexual harasser. Kavanaugh was identified as a potential Supreme Court nominee by Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society. The Federalist Society, or FedSoc, 
is a network of lawyers that works to further conservative values like hindering social progress and rolling back worker protections. You don't have to take my word for it. We can look at Kavanaugh's writing and previous court rulings and how he's described his judicial philosophy. These provide us with insight into how he would rule on these issues as a Supreme Court justice. Kavanaugh has had a lengthy career, so I'm going to focus primarily on some of the hot-button issues like reproductive rights and presidential authority. Donald Trump was clear during his campaign that if elected president, he would nominate Supreme Court justices who would overturn Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade is a Supreme Court case from 45 years ago that established the constitutional right to terminate your pregnancy. In that case, a pregnant single woman brought a lawsuit challenging a Texas law that made it illegal to get an abortion or even try to get an abortion unless the doctor said it was necessary to save the mother's life. The court responded in a couple interesting ways. First, they said that while the Constitution never explicitly mentions a right to privacy, such a right had been recognized in tons of cases before the court for decades and exists in the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty. Second, they said that the right to personal privacy includes the decision of whether or not to get an abortion. And third, they said that a woman's right is not absolute and that the state could still put some limits on this right. Texas tried to be like, all right, cool, let's limit it then, because we think life starts from the moment of conception. But the court was basically like, look, I am neither a doctor nor a priest. I'm not going to tell you and everybody else where precisely life begins. Let's just agree that a woman won't be able to terminate her pregnancy at whatever time, in whatever way, and for whatever reason she chooses, because the state should have a say in protecting her health and protecting potential human life. Meanwhile, women are like, actually, the ability to control if, when, or how I create a family is critically important if I'm ever going to control my own health, education, employment, and really just live my life and participate in society, but go off, I guess. A few decades after Roe, another major abortion case came before the Supreme Court. In Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the court upheld Roe's central holding that there is a constitutional right to an abortion but said the state could constitutionally regulate and restrict that right so long as the law did not create an undue burden. The burden is undue if the law's purpose or effect is to place substantial obstacles in the path of a person seeking an abortion before the fetus is viable. One of the men on the court at the time of these cases was Justice Rehnquist, who dissented from the judgments in both Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. In Roe, Rehnquist didn't think the right to privacy was involved at all. He also argued that abortion laws should be left up to the states, and the states should only have to say that their abortion restrictions are rationally related to a legitimate state interest. Rehnquist doubled down on his narrow concept of individual liberty in his dissent in part in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. The first thing Rehnquist does in his dissent in Casey is say that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided and can and should be overturned. He then argued that states didn't have enough leeway to restrict abortion and discusses, among other things, that the state has a legitimate interest in making a wife tell her husband first if she wants an abortion and that making a mandatory waiting period furthers the state's interest in maternal health. 
One of Rehnquist's colleagues, Justice Blackman, read Rehnquist for filth on this. Blackman said that Rehnquist's view of the state's compelling interest in maternal health has less to do with health than it does with compelling women to be maternal. Blackman also expressed fear that Rehnquist and the rest of the conservative bloc on the court was just waiting for the one more vote they needed to strip away constitutional protections for reproductive choice. I tell this story because about 10 months ago, Brett Kavanaugh gave a speech where he said that Rehnquist was his first judicial hero. Out of all possible judges, this is the one he looks up to. He specifically praised Rehnquist's belief that since abortion is not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution, and such a right isn't, quote, rooted in the traditions and conscience of our people, abortion is not a constitutional right. Surprise, surprise, we don't have much of a tradition in this country of letting anyone other than straight white dudes control their own bodies. That doesn't mean that I, as a black woman, shouldn't be entitled to constitutional protections for bodily integrity. And what about protecting the rights of LGBT persons to avoid persecution based on their sexual orientation and gender? Are those also up in the air now because they're not specifically enumerated in the Constitution and historically part of this country's traditions? I do not buy into the notion that it's constitutional for this country to continue to treat marginalized groups any old way just because it was late to grow a conscience. Someone called Bonnie Tyler because I need a hero and Rehnquist ain't it. Turning back to reproductive rights, just last year, Kavanaugh tried to prevent a pregnant teenager from being able to terminate her pregnancy. An underage, undocumented immigrant known as Jane Doe was being held in federal custody in a government-funded shelter in Texas. Jane was pregnant and had decided to get an abortion. Texas law requires that a minor get parental consent or a judicial waiver in order to get an abortion, so Jane got the waiver from a judge. But the feds still wouldn't let her go or let anyone take her to an abortion provider so she could get the medical treatment she had a constitutional right to. Instead, they forced her to go to a so-called pregnancy crisis center, where they made her get an ultrasound for no medical reason, made her reveal intimate details about herself, and tried to dissuade her from getting an abortion. Her case came before Kavanaugh, who was sitting on a three-judge panel for the D.C. Circuit. Now, I want to ask you all to put on your thinking caps and your judge robes for a second. Think about the facts of Jane Doe's case and the undue burden standard I explained a few minutes ago. You're probably thinking, this is a clear undue burden because they are unquestionably putting substantial obstacles in Jane's path to access an abortion before the fetus is viable. Good thinking, judge. And the ACLU agrees with you. Obviously, the longer the government stops her and other people in her situation from accessing an abortion, the longer she stays pregnant, the more risks could increase with the procedure, and the more likely it is she's forced to carry the pregnancy to term against her will. The Trump administration argued that if Jane Doe really wanted an abortion, she could just go back to her home country, even though abortion is completely illegal there, or she could find a sponsor in the United States who would be willing to house her and let her terminate her pregnancy. Best case scenario, finding a sponsor could take a couple weeks, but it's not at all guaranteed and could just foreclose entirely the possibility of a safe legal abortion. But Brett Kavanaugh thought that was just fine. 
and issued a court order agreeing with the Trump administration's position. Thankfully, as I mentioned, Kavanaugh issued that opinion when only three judges were present, so then the full court was like, mm, wait a minute, I think not, and quickly reversed in a 6-3 to three decision. Kavanaugh wrote a really salty dissent about it, but at the end of the day, he was not able to further delay and likely prevent Jane Doe from accessing reproductive health care, as is her constitutional right. If, or really, when, Kavanaugh solidifies the conservative majority on the Supreme Court, future pregnant people like Jane will probably not be so lucky. Kavanaugh's order and subsequent dissent also shows that he wouldn't even have to go so far as to outright overturn Roe. He can't just pretend under the Casey standard that even the most insurmountable obstacles don't create an undue burden, making abortion legal in theory but inaccessible in practice. The resultant harms would be most dangerous for women of color, low-income people, young people, and anyone unable to travel out of state to seek access to abortion care. The Supreme Court has upheld abortion as constitutional for almost 50 years because a pregnant person should be able to decide for themselves whether to carry a pregnancy to term. Abortion is a safe, common medical procedure and a necessary component of comprehensive health care. Research has shown that states with more abortion restrictions have higher rates of maternal and infant mortality. Something that I find really striking is that if you look at the data from before and after Roe v. Wade, the birth rate remained fairly constant, but the maternal mortality rate dropped dramatically. Preventing women from accessing safe legal abortions doesn't save babies. It kills women. That doesn't sound very pro-life to me. We need access to abortion so that we can fully participate in society. I trust that the one in four women in the United States who will have an abortion by age 45 are making the right decision for them and their families. So why doesn't Brett Kavanaugh? As you probably expected, abortion is not the only area of law where I think Brett Kavanaugh's judgment is bad and he should feel bad. Kavanaugh is also outspoken about expansive executive powers. There's no good time to have a judge who thinks the president is above the law, but with Donald Trump as president, this is a particularly bad time. Judge Kavanaugh published an article in Minnesota Law Review in 2009, where he argued that the president should be able to defer any and all civil suits and criminal prosecutions until after he leaves office. He further said that Congress should make a law saying a sitting president should be exempted from even answering questions from a prosecutor as part of a criminal investigation. First of all, this is a terrible idea because it basically means that presidents are above the law, at least for the duration of the presidency. Legal accountability and justice should not have to wait. If a president is engaging in unlawful activity, untold harm could happen in the time it takes for their term to end. That Kavanaugh is a serious proponent of putting checks and balances on layaway should be disqualifying. Second of all, Donald Trump is the subject of at least one criminal investigation and is defendant in several civil lawsuits. So what we have here is a president under investigation trying to appoint a guy who says that presidents shouldn't be investigated because that's not suspicious at all. 
This is not a person who should be in a position to assess the wrongdoing of Trump and his administration. Personally, I think it's a bad look for a president under investigation to be nominating a justice at all, since that justice might then have to hear a case about that investigation. It can be read as a reward. You get this great justice position because I know you won't keep me accountable. That too should be disqualifying. I am not convinced at all that Kavanaugh is willing and able to appropriately act as a check on Donald Trump's abuses of power. On top of this, in 2016, Kavanaugh said that he wanted to overturn a case called Morrison v. Olson. Morrison v. Olson is a Supreme Court case from 30 years ago that upheld the constitutionality of a law creating an independent counsel. Interestingly, it's the same law that permitted Kavanaugh to work on the Bill Clinton investigation and rapidly pursue impeachment. It's a little rich that he now thinks the president can do whatever he wants. It's possible he regrets his role in the Clinton investigation and has genuinely reconsidered, but this would still be a wild overcorrection. Regardless, it's disingenuous for more conservatives to not be concerned about this, since they were very preoccupied with executive overreach and checks and balances when Obama was president, and Obama wasn't out here tweeting that he has the absolute right to pardon himself. Trump treats this country like it's his own little kingdom, and he's Lord Farquaad. We need Supreme Court justices who treat Trump like an elected official under the law, not a wannabe king who's above it. So what happens now? Well, Judge Brett Kavanaugh can't become Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh until the Senate gives its advice and consent. This is established in Article 2 of the Constitution. Advice and consent is where the Senate gets to say, we need the receipts. They get to say, if this dude is going to be on the Supreme Court for the rest of his life, I need to know about his judicial philosophies, his ideologies, his professional qualifications. Give me all of it so I can make an informed decision. Get it all out in the open before we vote. This can be a very extensive process, and Republicans are already trying to water it down. Chuck Grassley, the Republican who chairs the Senate Judiciary Committee, has refused to request documents on behalf of the committee related to Kavanaugh's time as White House Staff Secretary. Kavanaugh himself has said that his staff secretary work, where he gave recommendations and advice to then-President George W. Bush, has been particularly instructive to his work as a judge. The staff secretary plays a big role in shaping federal policy, so it would be good to know whether Kavanaugh was involved in Bush-era policies like torture is okay, for example. The Senate can't properly give advice and consent as per the Constitution if they don't have full information. And in order to make an informed decision, Republicans need to release the records. It's not like people are asking for more than they did for past Supreme Court nominees, and the American people need to know exactly who is being voted for. Since there's no more filibuster for Supreme Court nominations, Trump only needs 51 votes to have Kavanaugh confirmed. And the Senate currently has 51 Republicans. In order to block Kavanaugh from being the next Supreme Court justice, all Democrats and independents would have to commit to voting no and convince two Republicans to break away from the party line. It's not looking good, y'all. One small way to help and get involved is to get your friends fired up about the Supreme Court. 
I know my fellow law nerds and I care, but generally, Republicans have done a way better job than Democrats at getting their base fired up about the judiciary. I would say they're killing the ground game, but this isn't a game at all. It's something that changes lives. People who care about the rights of marginalized persons need to be more invested in the judiciary. In an article I wrote for New America Weekly years ago, I noted that the court appeared to be in a position to shift rightwards, and people invested in progressive gains shouldn't get too comfortable. A lot of people who raised concerns about the court were dismissed as hysterical, and people said they were exaggerating. Even now, we have op-eds in the New York Times and Washington Post with people saying the courts are fine, it's not the end of the world. But now I look and behold a pale horse, and its rider's name is Brett Kavanaugh. I've got to admit, I'm not feeling especially optimistic, friends. But we still owe it to ourselves and to each other to fight in whatever way we can. So call your senators and tell them to oppose Kavanaugh. Especially if you live in Maine or Alaska, because your senators aren't quite on the fence, but they're the most wobbly. If you go to the website fivecalls.org, that's the number five and then C-A-L-L-S, you can enter your zip code and it'll give you the phone number for your state senator. And if any Democrat party leaders are listening, mobilize. Republican groups have spent millions of dollars on TV and radio ad campaigns to get voters and elected officials to support Kavanaugh's nomination. We need to step it up, or else we're going to get stepped on. I don't know about y'all, but I prefer boots on my feet, not on my neck. All right. And with that, thank you all so much for listening. I hope you learned something new about the Supreme Court and some of the issues going before it. If you did, please subscribe and share with your friends. Bard and Bougie is available on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can also rate episodes and leave comments. I would love to hear your feedback. You can also always like and follow the Bard and Bougie Facebook page for more updates or to just hit me up. Or use the hashtag Bard, B-A-R-R-E-D, on any social media platform. Thanks again, everyone and tune in for a new episode next week.